everyone, my name is Jack Rico, and he's Mike Sargent. And he is brown, and I'm black. And this is the Brown and Black Podcast, a show about seeing race in media and entertainment through a brown and black lens. Well, Mike, it's been a very busy week in the news, and I'm sure that uh, you've been following up on everything, and we'll talk about some of those items in just a little bit in the news uh, section. But my friend, I really haven't spoken to you very much uh, throughout the, the last week or so. How have you been doing? I've been, I've been okay. It's been an interesting time. There's this thing we've talked about here on the show where you know there's a certain amount of information there's information overload you know and if it's negative information it's even worse and there's a term for it called doom scrolling have you heard of this term i've heard of it i've heard of it and it's like you 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 somehow are swallowed into a black hole of information that you can't really get out of and and that's just it so i mean i have learned to temper all of the information I take in. But I have to say, I'm having to utilize those skills more and more. I actually have a file on my desk called, uh, it's a folder called Rabbit Hole. And that's where I'd like, as I start, I catch myself and I'll just drag the URL in there. If I ever have the time to go back, I'll go. So yeah. You know what I've been doing? I've been doing something a little similar and, and I'm starting to hate myself for it because I'm like, why am I doing this? So essentially, <laughs> I go through... Apple's new plus, news, Apple News Plus, and I go through all their articles, and then I start saving them. And then I notice I save everything I have in the New York Times app. And then I have Google News Plus, where I save everything. And then I have in, in the Safari of my website, of my MacBook Pro, I have a whole add to reading list section. Brother, the odds of me going back to those saved articles in those four different, you know, bubbles to re- to read everything I've saved, <laughs> it, it's it's like, I'm, why am I saving this if I'm not even reading it? It's too much. So it's almost like I, in, there's a part of my brain that goes, well, just because I saved it means I did the work so I can move on with my life or something. Like I did right. something uh, efficient there. Yet, it it was totally empty because if I'm not reading that particular article, then what am I reading? So what I've noticed that I'm reading is like things about race and politics. I am trying to learn as much as I can about the history of Latinos in America, the history of Latin America, the history of blacks in Latin America, the history of blacks in America, and that alone is enough and so the other things are like compliments, but dude, it is extremely tough to be in this time and to have and to speak from an eloquent and intellectual place without essentially having a full-time job in learning this. And I'm not talking nine to five. I'm talking like from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. And I think that that's wearing me down. I do feel mentally fatigued and... Man, you know, talk about a doom scroll, man. I think I've been through it. Just what you just said, that that's my rabbit hole folder where I keep putting stuff in there and I can't even tell you when I've actually opened it and looked in Oh my in God, there. you should see my tab list. It's like a thousand tabs and it just drives me crazy and I get a headache just by looking at it. So sometimes I just wipe everything from scratch. Yeah, it's almost like I see? reset Safari and guess what? I didn't miss anything. Yeah, and, and I can I can I can say it's it, there is such a thing I think as mental clutter, and you kind of have to so free lovely. the space. No, and and at, at this point you got to curate somehow, right? 
Exactly. Then the second part of what you said about why you do it, one of the things we have in common is we both enjoy learning. We both enjoy the challenge of learning. We both know the joy of learning and all that. But we both have been trained as as journalists. You know, we've been trained to like, okay, you're going to speak on something, do your homework. That short phrase, do your homework, that can be hours years of our lives <laughs> absolutely <laughs> listen doing oh, i remember homework. i went to msnbc one day when i was still at univision i had asked them for permission to do a couple of you know uh auditions and um i my agent got me a meeting with msnbc to become one of their anchors for the overnight hours right i was probably like 27 28 and i remember i got there and i did the audition and the casting director says to me well, listen, you read very well on camera, but I could tell that you are not a news junkie. And unfortunately, we need news junkies. And it's, news junkies is because our viewers, even though they're small, very small, they're very influential, and they're all news junkies. They tune into MSNBC only for news. They live, they breathe, they poo news. And if you're not at their level, and you're not informing them of different things, then unfortunately, um, you know, we're not going to be able to have you. So whenever you come back as a news junkie, uh, then we'll, you know, most likely, you know, audition you again and see if we can give you a job. I remember going, holy cow, how am I supposed to become a news junkie when I don't love, the news depresses me, Mike. There's an emotional uh, resistance with the news because it it's all negative. That's the other thing, you know, where good news doesn't sell newspapers as well. Not that anybody buys newspapers anymore, but the headlines, it's not like peaceful protests continue. Like nobody's going to, they'll scroll past that. Man lit on fire at protest. Click. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> why that, is that, Mike? Ah, uh, you know, that's a whole thing. We could do Why do we hate why, good news and why do we love bad news why do we rubberneck i mean that's what it is we're mental rubberneck we have to slow down and watch the disaster we're fascinated with that even to our detriment that's really what even to our detriment yeah an utter contradiction your sense of dread absolutely and and, and if you ask your brain if you ask yourself do i want to live in this environment in this mental ecosystem of dread no your body's everything about your body's telling you no yet you can't help yourself the more knowledge you have you know you say latino history and even personal history changes you you know having a knowledge of the history of something an event a country a culture it increases your understanding of what's happening today We're going to be talking to Estuardo Rodriguez. He is the president and CEO of the Friends of the American Latino Museum, a campaign to create the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Latino in Washington, D.C.'s National Mall. And we talked to him about why it wasn't named the Latin X Museum. And, you know, it was an interesting response he gave. Let's listen to a brief snippet of that. 
Was there ever any consideration of naming the museum the Latin X Museum or the Hispanic Museum? I mean, we've been through so many labels and so many terms. How did we end up with American Latino? Because I, for one, have never truly uh, identified myself as an American Latino. I might have said U.S. Hispanic or Colombian American. No. What was the discussion about this? And finally, who? Uh, how did you get this, the American Latino name? You're, do you have a question, Mike, for me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to take it now. I'm happy to take it right now. <laughs> oh, man. So you see, it's a little bit more complicated on just the label alone of why it's being called like that. So we'll talk to him in just a few minutes. But Mike, what do you say we get into the news? So the Emmy nominations, the 2020 Emmy nominations were released and big brouhaha has come over all of Latinx media because none of Latinx actors were nominated in any of the major categories. And the opposite happened with the black community. There was, it's almost like it rained black programming, black nominations with black actors. It was like the black Emmys, essentially. And Latinos, for the most part, felt once again, and I hate to say this word so many times, invisible. So want to kind of hear your thoughts on your end of how you feel about the Emmy nominees and the nominations this year. Uh, from an African-American perspective, you think that this is what you guys have been waiting for for years. Is this how you wanted to continue? Are you satisfied with the nominations? And how do you feel about the award show overall? Well, that's that's a quite a lot of questions rolled into <laughs> one there i just want to say but okay but I'll, I'll try and parse it out well first of all i think yes there is no progress without struggle we all know that and the other thing we know is social media and identity the emmys do not want to be identified like the oscars were oscar so white right uh, right and look back on the 60s will tell you a lot about how the counterculture influences the actual culture so if People are saying Black Lives Matter. Well, if you're the Emmys, you better show these black actors and their lives and the lives they're portraying matter. So they have to do that. There's no way. It's show business. Hello. You have to do that. So that's one. Two, but it also points out, like everything else, right now, black is hot. Black is in. Black is hip. If you're a hip person, if you're woke. You are all about Black Lives Matter. You should be. But at the same time, like and I may have mentioned here on the show, where, you know, I was reading articles about how during the Black Lives Matter movement, people were ordering all these books on, on race and, and, and yeah, white fragility, how to be an anti-racist. Yeah, they ordered all these books. But guess what? They sat at the bookstores and people did not pick them up. Can you believe? They thought that just by ordering the book, which is sort of like me looking at an article and then putting it in the save section, you feel like you did something. (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) 
You feel like you did something. <laughs> like you were but, protected but again, for somehow. May, maybe they were intending to, but there is such a thing. The, the term used to be armchair activist. And a lot of, let's just say, a lot of people, let's just say the white ruling class, because there's a white ruling class in every area of every part of our country. So the white ruling class of the Emmys, okay, does not want to look bias you can't have in the middle of the black lives movement you cannot have a typical all white emmys you just can't do it so how do you get a win nominate every black show and every black performer you possibly can so that's what you do now about latinos latinos as you and i have discussed latinos have their own very specific issues of identity assertion of their identity within america clearly i think the museum will will probably be much will do much more than maybe it even knows it will do that's my my prediction but latinos now it's, it's all over the news thank god that it it should be it needs to be and this is the only way it's going to change only way it's going to change is like this because the only reason that all these blacks are getting nominated and all these even black shows have happened on is because there's been so much backlash in the industry for a lack of representation and specifically for for black people but clearly for all brown and every other color that you could possibly imagine there is that lack of diversity diversity does not mean throw a black character in there have a couple of black people that that's not necessarily diversity diversity has to be diverse i do think latino are going to have to fight and claw and demand just like black folks did because it's not going to be handed to them easily. That's my opinion. From 2015 to 2019, 82% of the nominees in 19 primetime Emmy categories were white. Black people accounted for 14% of the nominees. And guess how many Latinos made up that percentage? Just take a wild guess. Eight. One. What is one? What it? What, what, one is closer to zero than anything, dude. Which is invisible. Okay, we're we're fucking invisible, Mike. But how come five years ago there was not the hashtag Latinos are on TV too? Because I think that what you guys do so incredibly well, because you're united by racial solidarity. We don't have it, and this is the part of the interview that we're going to have with Estuardo Rodriguez a little later on, where we ask him this. There's a massive issue with Hispanics in uniting because we're not a race. We're not united in a particular front outside of the fact that we're all, you know, speak Spanish, come from some sort of Hispanic background, but that's not enough. That's not power. That, that's not the type of emotional, deep, piercing, painful struggle that we've had. We don't get paid well. We don't, we're not represent. That's not necessarily painful. That's not African-American painful. And I think that a lot of whites is like, listen, you got a problem with not being here, you know, and being a a maid or a thug in in a movie. Well, sorry, Uh, you know, get over it. That's what I feel like most likely white programmers and white executives feel about it. Like we're almost like a nuisance. Like, they wish they didn't have to deal with us. And even more, when they do feel that some progress in diversity and inclusion has been made, it's mostly when white people feel like they've made it with the African-American community, not with the Latino one. So if you ask a white person right now, how do you think you've done? Give yourself an exam, a test. How do you think you've done? Grade yourself with the Emmy nominations. We think we've knocked it out of the park. 
because they've prized and nominated blacks, not Latinos. And to them, that's it. I don't need to do anything else. And then when the Hispanics come in, hey, we got our we 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 got our you know our signs and we want more representation. They're like, yeah, you and the disabled and the LGBTQ plus and the Asians and the Pacific American. They're like, no, the only ones that matter here are the African American, and that is how it feels to us. That's why we feel so invisible. Like we can bitch and we can shout off of the top of our lungs, and it will never match the painful experiences. Uh, that your community has had. And so how do we overcome that? How do we talk louder? How do we shout louder? I don't think we can, Mike. And I think that this is going to be like this for a very, very long time until probably 2050 when we become the majority because that is the only thing that we have going for us. That we are the majority, and I don't want to use the word minority so much, but we are the majority minority. We're 18% of the population. And by the year 2050, we'll most likely become the majority here in the United States. And then we're going to start infiltrating all those power um, authority positions to influence, shape the narrative. By having this American Latino Museum, that's going to help. But I don't think this is going to change anytime soon, Mike. For once, I'm probably a little bit more optimistic than you. I do think that, you know, the, the, there will be a significant backlash to everything that's been going on in 2020. And I think that that will reverberate over the next few decades in America. And, and let's hope it's awoken uh, conscious of America, or at least a conscious of those who are conscious, in my opinion. I completely understand where you're coming from because when you look at the list of Emmy nominations, the only Latin thing is the name of the Breaking Bad movie. I mean, there's nothing in there. It's a sad thing. And look, I get it. There's been a lot of articles. I think even Eric Deegan's from uh, NPR, he wrote a piece about it. Rosie Cordero at Entertainment Weekly, she wrote an opinion piece about it. And, and her piece sounded very passionate. And I get it. Because I think what her perspective, her point that she was trying to make is, here's what we've been hearing for years. Uh, you guys just don't have any shows on TV. So we can't pick from anything to nominate you for. And at that point, you know, conversation, you know, done. I, yeah, you're right. But this year, Mike, Vita and Stars, The Baker and the Beauty, Party of Five, yeah. Grand Hotel, yeah. all canceled. Then you got Mayans MC, Undone on Amazon Prime Video, which, by the way, I think is the best Latinx show uh, out there right now. On My Block, One Day at a Time, The Expanding Universe of Ashley Garcia, Diary of a Future President, Hentified, Queen of the South, Narcos Mexico, Charmed, Mystery Glasses, Love Victor, Los Spookies, and that's not even mentioning the animated on Nickelodeon, The Casa Grandes, Elena Vavilor, and I can go on and on and on and on and you get it. You couldn't pick one person from any of those shows in a major category?
got an email from Disney Plus saying, you have now accessed Black is King on Disney Plus. So you and I talked about this. We're like, okay, we got to watch it. Listen, I'm not the biggest Beyonce fan. Uh, I stopped being a Beyonce fan a while back. She used to be a pop singer. And I can't even relate to what kind of music it is, but it's very above my head music. It's very artistic. It's very uh, abstract to a certain extent. Wanted to know your thoughts on Black is King because they're calling it a film. It's about an hour and 23, 25 minutes. And from what I saw, Mike, doesn't look like a film. All right. Well, first of all, it's not a film. It is something that if you look it up, it is a visual album. Visual album is a noun. Songs on an album accompanied by a series of videos are a single film serving as a visual vehicle for the music. So only in that context could you call it a film. So from that context, we can keep talking. Because it's a visual album. Well, it's a cinematic visual album because no visual album has ever been made like that. If anything, it's a historic piece of art uh, when Absolutely. it comes to visual albums. And I would actually describe it more like that. I would describe it more like a celebration of African culture mixed in with themes and lessons of the Lion King using that template to try and tell some sort of narrative, except that the narrative are abstract music videos sort of stitched together with a particular Lion King storyline that brings forth this new type of medium. I, I, I don't know. It, it, dude, it, it's, it's hard to explain when you see it. But one thing I can say, it's absolutely beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. And from where I'm sitting, I see it as a blend of things. It's groundbreaking in its topic and its subject matter, but from a context point of view, from my point of view, The Lion King, while people know it as something that was this Disney thing, The Lion King is based on real African folklore. And we all know folklore and, and children's fables and children's stories are all always meant to teach you a lesson. They all always are things to, you know, morality plays, pieces of wisdom. So for her to combine music and visuals and wisdom and storytelling and all these things in one, and as you said, a celebration of blackness, of black culture, I think was great. And I think it was great also that she didn't forget brown folks at all. Right, because she had um, Jesse, Jesse Reyes. Reyes. Right. Yes. She's not there for too long, but I appreciated that she's elevating Latinx yes. artists because that platform for Jesse Reyes, let me tell you something. Jesse Reyes was opening the MTV VMAs before the broadcast. That's how they were treating her. And by the way, Cardi B started out like that. Hmm. At the same exact time, it's nice to see that, that, that she's worked really hard, that finally... 
a big artist has allowed her her own spotlight to shine. And for that, I really appreciate it. And I think Beyonce is one of those artists that really, truly uh, understands that it's not just a black thing. For her to do a Spanish language album and a major track with Shakira really speaks to her desire to understand our culture so much more, man. And if anything, that's one of the greatest moments of brown and black, black and brown unity in pop culture that I remember seeing in music um, probably in the last 10 to 15 years, man. So kudos for her, you know, love what she represents for her community. I I love what she does with Latinx folks as well. Um, And and for that, I mean, if you guys want to support it, not everybody's going to like it, but I think that if you like art, you like something abstract, and you're just a fan of Beyonce, I think it's something that's worthy of watching, definitely, because it's, it's absolutely stunning visually. And it is a celebration of culture, which, of course, leads into our next guest. So before we talk to Estuardo Rodriguez, the president and the CEO of the Friends of the American Latino Museum, I remember I was going through Instagram, actually our Brown and Black podcast Instagram. We have, we're following, you know, some of the most influential people that are plugged in, activists, journalists, people that are making noise in both our communities, in black and brown. And one of the things that I saw popping up was that a bill was passed recently for the new Smithsonian National American Latino Museum. Now, this is something that has been going on for years. We've been trying to get one. There's an African-American museum that was built in 2016, but it was approved in 2003. Native American Museum for the Smithsonian, that was built, I believe it was in 2004. And there's been a lot of rumblings for years, almost 25 years, I believe, since the mid-1990s, that a lot of Hispanics have been like, well, what what about us? We're 18% of the population. And for some weird reason, you guys don't want to talk about the contributions that we've done. Now, you remember that this whole thing started with a Twitter exchange I had with a couple of people on Twitter that kind of, you know, almost got out of control, where I had said that, is there enough Hispanic history in the United States to actually fill three to four floors at a museum. And that sort of initiated a conversation on Twitter. I started asking myself, how much do I know about U.S. Hispanic history? And this is what brings me now to Estuardo Rodriguez, um, who has been campaigning to create this museum for a very long time. And we talked to him about the House vote. And if you don't know what the House vote that just recently passed, that uh, they're celebrating, uh, let's take a listen. Eduardo Rodriguez is the president and the CEO of the Friends of the American Latino Museum, a campaign to create the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Latino in Washington, D.C.'s National Mall. Eduardo, welcome to the Brown and Black Podcast. 
Thank you. Very excited to be here with you guys. Well, congrats on your organization's significant victory of obtaining a House Voice vote. Yes. Applausos, applausos. To create the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Latino. For those who are unfamiliar with the term, what exactly is a voice vote? And what are the next steps that need to occur to seal an official approval of this? So actually, uh, um, 2003, Javier Becerra, now aging in California, Ileana Ross Leighton, now uh, no longer in, on, on Capitol Hill, but a, a board member of ours from the Friends of Latino Museum, uh, Friends of the American Latino Museum, um, they introduced the first bill to create a commission to study the viability of an, of an American Latino Museum. That bill, that, we got involved in 2005 officially as, as a group. Um, and, and focused on getting that bill passed. We did get that bill passed, and, and it's interesting because many people think it was passed under President Obama. It was actually signed by George W. Bush mm. to create a, a body that would study the, the, the possible creation of an American Latino Museum. They, did, they started their work um, uh, in 2009 and turned in a report in 2011 on Cinco de Mayo, um, perfectly timed, of course, and, and uh, that report laid out the plan. And you can find that report on our website, the AmericanLatinoMuseum.org. Um, and, and it lays out what it could contain, the missing stories of the Smithsonian, and of course, possible cost. Roughly $625 million is what they said back then in 2011. Since that time, we had been focused on passing the authorization bill, which is the National American Latino Museum Act, which just passed this week. Um, that bill uh, we had been working on since 2011, 2012. It's gone through two, three different Congresses. Uh, this is the fourth one. I'm very excited about finally getting that one through. So let me tell you, kids, it's it's a lot harder uh, to get a bill passed. <laughs> and of course, because of the, because of the elements of of what's happening in the country, um, you know, what's happening in the partisanship. But I will tell you, this bill is tremendously bipartisan. It, it brings together uh, both sides of the aisle. So we can say we're a divided country right now for many reasons, but on U.S. history, which is what we try to focus on, this is the American story. 30 million tourists go to the National Mall every year, perhaps not in this environment, but they normally come from not just around the country, but around the world to learn about the, the, the nation our, our origins, how we came together, why we are the strongest nation in the world, and to not have 500 years of history on the mall that explains the role, not just of the Spanish and the Mexican, but the Central Americans that actually worked and cooperated and supported and provided res uh, resources and food to George Washington's troops. I mean, nobody even talks about that. And there's a small exhibit, I'll tell you, if you get to the old Spanish residence in Washington, D.C., in the back, uh, this is on 16th Street, closer to Adams Morgan. You go to the back of that old Spanish residence, they have maybe 500 square feet of an exhibit showing how the Spanish supported George Washington. Nowhere else in the, in the, that's in the it. city or the country will you see something like that. And, and those are the, just that's the tip of the iceberg of stories that need to be shared uh, of, of the Latino contributions throughout 500 years. And that's what we've been fighting for, and that's why we're excited that the bill finally passed. This week, of course, we have the Senate, but we have a few minutes to celebrate uh, that we got that bill through. I have a few questions. Um, you know, I, I only kind of came to the realization myself recently uh, that if you change history, you change the future. 
And, you know, you've been an advocate for history. You wrote a great article uh, in The Hill uh, that Latinos are not invading Texas. And you said that they settled here long before the Europeans landed on Plymouth Rock. And I'm just going to quote you for a second. You said, stories of trailblazing Latinos who have left lasting impacts on our history could fill volumes. And I'll just pause there. You know, uh, we as African-Americans, we have Black History Month. We have a few figures, you know, people know, you can name at least a half of those, Frederick Douglass, Harry Tubman. But a trailblazing Latino, I would defy most people in this country to even name two. So how important do you feel it is not only to understand the history, but to really change history? You know, that, that article that, uh, that, that you're citing uh, came after the El Paso shooting, which, of course, um, it, we're coming upon that anniversary now. Um, you know, it, it's, an, it's an amazing story because people that kind of gloss over what happened assume some crazy person just um, you know, showed up in El Paso and, and started firing. But that individual drove over seven hours, went specifically to that place because of the density of the Latino community. A, a community there that, that did not arrive 200 years ago, did not you know, cross the water uh, to move to that area, uh, and didn't cross the border to move there yesterday. They have been there, and they've always been there. Uh, uh, the idea in this madman's uh, head was that there, were, there was an invasion happening uh, you know, on the border, and that if no one was going to do something, he was going to do something. Uh, had he understood his history, had our American classrooms focused on the history of that piece uh, of, of our country, that land, he would have understood the important um, you know, economy, um, business, society, arts, uh, community, leadership that built El Paso in that area, that made it what it is uh, today, and, and, and the cross-border economy that's reliant uh, for all those people to have jobs and work. Uh, there was no invasion happening. It was basically just business as usual for the last 500 years or more. There are communities there that have lived in three different countries. Uh, my wife is from San Antonio and did her uh, ancestry and realized that at one point that piece of land where her family still is was Mexico. Then it was the Independent Republic of Texas. And then it was part of Spain. And then it was the United States. That's history. We can't and should not ignore that simply because of the political rhetoric in the country that makes us believe that we're somehow less or that someone is invading us. Uh, or, or that, that there is a hostile force trying to subvert the American flag. That's not accurate. What is, what is written, what should be written uh, in, in those history books is the accuracy of how we came to be, and, and that's missing on our national law. And, it's, and it has tragic consequences, as we saw in El Paso. Estuardo, you know, when, when we talk about race in America, we're really talking about white and black for the most part. And Latinos, and it's been said many times, we're invisible. And that takes a hold on us, takes a hold on us uh, since we're childs. We don't see ourselves represented in any way. Uh, you don't read about our history and our contributions uh, in America. Why do you think that happened? What happened that the, our, our contributions were, for the most part, erased? And if you ask, like what Mike was saying earlier before, if you had to mention two iconic uh, Latinos in the history of America, people will have a hard time. Naming them, 
the Smithsonian in 1994 commissioned their own report um, on their museums and their exhibits, and they titled the findings Willful Neglect. It, the, the, the amount of, of effort that it took to, as you said, Jack, erase Latino history appeared to be intentional. That, that's why they called the report Willful Neglect. It was so obvious that there were moments in their exhibits and their narrative, they're shaping the American narrative for the 30 million tourists that go to all of those museums on the National Mall, that they had to have some intention to carve the story uh, in a way that left out American Latino contributions. So to a certain extent, I, I think that you answered the question yourself. There's an intentional er erasing of that history and perhaps there's just like, just like in, in mainstream media in Hollywood. Sometimes it's because there's a, there's a, a misperception of, uh, of, of what that might do to the mainstream audience, whether they might like it, whether they might find it, whether they would connect with it. And I think over the last 10 years, you've had moments, even in Hollywood, where people have realized that if you just dive in completely into a story, whether it's uh, Crazy Rich Asians, um, Black or, Panther, or, 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 or Black Panther, or, or Coco, these stories, uh, the more ethnic and cultural they are, sometimes are the ones that relate the most to a mass audience. But there's, there's, there's been a long history of that where you just feel like I need to appeal to a, broad, a broader audience and so let's just go with the white Anglo story. Um, I, I think that people will be surprised and the Latino community will be surprised. When you go into an American Latino museum one day, which, you, which we will, um, I, would be, I would be surprised if the Latino community themselves between the Puerto Ricans, the Dominicans, the Cuban Americans, um, and, and Peruvian Americans like myself, you go through that museum and you're going to be sitting there thinking, oh my God, I had no idea, right? Th these are the experiences that I think we're going to, these are the experiences that, that, that have not been told and must be told. Um, and we have to do our job, all three of us here and, and everyone else that, that hears this, to push that narrative out there, to learn our history and to share it. I go into the African-American Museum and I had gone in there four times and I have never left the, the, the main floor because there's so much wow. to read. I know one day I will get through the rest of that museum, but just that main floor, it's, it's overwhelming, the, the amount of information. And that's what I hope that, that we're able to force through with a National Museum in the American Latino. Well, let me ask you a question. Um, you know, you, you said mainstream, and, and I, I think that I've always thought that that was an interesting term. So, you know, is it really mainstream or is it a side stream trying to control, you know, you only get this, so you don't know whether you'd ever like this. We know the answer but, to that, Mike. We know <laughs> okay, the answer yeah. to that. <laughs> but, but here's what I'm getting at. That resistance, there is an African-American museum, and, and that's the biggest one, and there are several. There is a Black History Month. The New York Times did a 1619 project, yet there are still lawmakers who are pushing to not fund a school if it includes any of that curriculum. What about the the other front? Because it's not just on the on the you know getting Congress and all the the quote unquote lawmakers to agree, but the pushback. How how do you get past that? How do you fight that the resistance? 
You know, it's interesting. I when the bill passed, and I've got a lot of friends here in D.C. who are doing amazing work and fighting the fight for dreamers, for immigration reform, voting rights, climate change, domestic violence issues. Everyone has their fight, and and they're everyone's pushing forward. And all of these issues, at any point, I would say, are so much more valuable. And I, not to diminish what I'm doing, but everyone's got an important fight. And when the bill passed, I had a number of people reach out to me saying, congratulations, that's awesome. And, and, and you have to stop sometimes and, and appreciate the, the, the small victories as you move forward, because we're pushing that train and keeping it moving. And then you, you realize that you're contributing to one piece of how to make our society better. So I don't see the American Latino Museum as this, as this four walls and a roof. That's not mm. really what the goal is. The goal is to help shape the narrative of yes. the nation, of, of the Latino community across the nation. When that building opens up and people are forced to see, of course, voluntarily, and some kids brought on field trips by force, but when, they're, <laughs> when they go into that museum, I've been on those field trips. Yeah, me too. Um, we all have. <laughs> we have. And you got out of class. Um, but, but when you go in that museum, you can't help but learn and absorb something. And hopefully Correct. that, even for the teachers that probably are not as interested, maybe, right? Hopefully that helps shape a narrative that they take back with them to Arizona, to the Southwest. And all that pushback around, let's not include Chicano studies, let's not include you know, all these other stories because that's too controversial. It starts to chip away at that. You know, there have been uh, individuals that we have worked with over the, over the years, um, the Mendez family, who, whose grandparents were part of the Westminster, Mendez versus Westminster, which was a case, a historic uh, Supreme Court case about uh, Hispanic, Mexican-American children being allowed to go to public schools uh, in California. Uh, that case is the precedent for Brown v. Board of Education, and very few people know that. And I met the family, uh, they, I met them over 10 years ago, and they were fighting to get that story into California uh, history books for the you know, public school systems. And, and they finally accomplished that, but that's just in California. We have to keep talking about that case. We, we have to have the museum so that public school teachers in, in, in Illinois and in Ohio, after learning more about that, come back and say, we need to include that case, that story in, in our history books. Because everyone knows Brown v. Board, but they don't understand what came before that. And those children were just as American. I think that we all have to do our piece and contribute to the whole. And this museum uh, is not going to just be a, a beautiful um, building with an amazing cafeteria. It's going to be something that is going to push back on that narrative state by state around the country. Wait, will it still have an amazing cafeteria, though? <laughs> it will have to Look, I don't even know where to Latino start. Latino food. I'm not, yes. sure. I'm not sure if we're going to have a yuca frita first or the... Well, or well, 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 too much. Or what? Yeah. Oh, tamales, that's right. <laughs> Take some empanadas to go. There it is. <laughs> that's You're it. Like, My favorite every, museum already. Already, dude. Already. Well, let's talk some insider baseball here. Let's talk about some details. Uh, the National Museum of the African-American History... 
um, had a price tag of $500 million, uh, half of it paid by the federal government. The Indian Museum, a third of it was paid by the federal government. Who will be paying for the American Latino Museum? Will it be privately funded or will finally the government pay what they should have been paying for years? Well, I was going to go to Oprah myself because I'm hoping she's got some Panamanian or some Dominican background. She helped out the African-American Museum. I'm like, come on, Oprah. Oh, man. Um, yeah. No, I, uh, we, have, we have followed the, uh, the model, uh, the legislative model of the, of the African-American Museum. It's a 50-50 split. Um, very similar. Our commission that, as I mentioned before, that submitted their report in 2011, they estimated roughly $625 million. Um, that was 2011. The same thing that happened to the African American Museum. By the time uh, they actually put a shovel in the ground, you know, inflation and costs skyrocketed. So, you know, that was a challenge. And we have, we have been in close contact uh, for many, many years um, with the African-American Museum effort before they even put a shovel on the ground. So mm. there were a lot of sharing of, uh, of uh, best practices and, and mistakes that they learned from. So I've been very blessed um, to have their leadership. Uh, and, and in fact, um, you know, one of the first things that, that happened when we organized as a C3, uh, I met with uh, now Judge Robert Wilkins, and he gave me a stack of all their reports um, just to say, look, here's here's a roadmap, guy, and and we've been we've been grateful ever since. Um, so, yeah, the fifty fifty split was 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 key, uh, especially in, when you're going to Capitol Hill and asking for money. Um, we expect that by the time a shovel goes into the ground, inflation will be what it is, and will likely be around a seven hundred million dollar price tag. So, you know, we consistently tell uh, the public and anyone with deep pockets that uh, we need to raise $350 million. And, and that money needs to simultaneously uh, build so that we can make the argument that we will step up as a community. Uh, corporate America has, has a, n- number of, uh, a number of times uh, reached out to me companies that have helped the African-American Museum have reached out to me to say, let us know where you are in the process and, and we'll be there. Now, not, I'm, not just, I'm not trying to suggest that we're, we're already there, but I am suggesting that there's interest and others should follow. And the community in particular, 60 million strong, give me three bucks each. Come on, and we'll, we'll, we'll make it. We'll make it there. Uh, but we got to put skin in the game. We got to put skin right. in the game here. We can't, you know, people have reached out and said, great job, great job. And few of them say, sign me up. Let me know what I can do. And that's the part of the email and the phone call that I appreciate the most. Because that's the only way we're going to get this done. Um, my amazing team and my board, our board chairman, wonderful people, but we're not going to get it done just by ourselves. We have to get it done with the community. Well, you know, you're, you're mentioning something there I think is very important, and, and that is uh, unity. And, and, you know, it's part of why we do the show. Uh, and it's very encouraging, like you said, to hear that, you know, the African-Americans are trying to help the Latinos do the same thing. You know, like we're, we're fighting the same battle. We've both been erased from relevance, from history. You know, you were mentioning how, uh, you know, your friends, the, the people you consider to be colleagues are all fighting for all these things that should just be, obviously, they help humanity. Hello. But you're up against, you know, all the things that have been passed by this administration are not things to help humanity. They're things to help corporations. You mentioned also unity with the community. And if it's okay to, for you to weigh in, you know, 
the community sees itself a certain way, but if people are who are in a position disregard the community, let's and you know I'm talking about Goya. How do we unify? How do we work around that? Because that, in my opinion, has to fracture a certain amount of unity within the Latino community. I, I think in in this environment, um, you know, we have found more than enough opportunity to divide, to pick our side. Um, and especially when it comes, you know, to, to companies, um, you know, I won't, I won't you know, give an opinion on, on Goya as much as I will say that in the last 15 years that I have not just worked on the Latino Museum, but also, yeah, I, my other hat is as a government affairs um, communications consultant. And along that, along that path, you know, I've worked with many companies. It's interesting to me that when I first started doing that work, I had to explain to a company why the social good and the engagement with black and brown communities was important and valuable. And then just this last year, you saw uh, the George, George Floyd Policing Act that was introduced by the House, and over 600 individuals and companies signed on sent a letter to Congress saying, we must pass this bill. Whatever the reason was that the companies had, there were iconic brands that signed up and said, yes, we have to do this. And so for me, it was amazing because we've come a long way where companies now are starting to realize it's much more than just the profit. You have to take care of the people that take care of you, the consumers that are showing up and buying your products and loyal to you, if they go away, you go away. And the companies are realizing that they have to have some value. They have to stand for something. Where are your values? And this last year, if not the last three or four years, they've had more than enough opportunities to take a stand for values. Now, some haven't, and I'm not going to give an opinion on that, but those that have, I think are, are, are sending a stronger message that we can no longer go around as a business as usual. We have to come together and, and stand with our values. And, and I hope that that's something that will continue to grow as opposed to go in the other direction. Was there ever any consideration of naming the museum the Latin X Museum or the Hispanic Museum? I mean, we've been through so many labels and so many terms. How did we end up with American Latino? Because I, for one, have never truly uh, identified myself as an American Latino. I might have said U.S. Hispanic or Colombian American. No. What was the discussion about this? And finally, who? Uh, how did you get this, the American Latino name? Do you, do you have a question, Mike, for me? <laughs> 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 I'm happy to take it now. I'm happy to take it right now. <laughs> oh man, Jack. Um, look, it, I, I'm maybe this is a controversial thing, um, but I think the the beauty of the um, African American Museum is that it starts in a in a unifying point. There's there's a there's a central uh, trigger that everything spirals out of. With the American Latino Museum, we're not going to necessarily have that. Our central point will be cultural. 
which we can go on and on about what that means and, and how people identify through language, food, family, et cetera, right? And, and of course, you know, dance. But the, the unifying points or the nucleus you know, come from all over. You have got the Spanish, you've got the Central Americans, the South Americans, you've got the Mexicans that have always been there. You have the Tainos, the native uh, people of Puerto Rico, um, and, and, and so many other you know, little points around the Southwest where our people always were, <clears throat> right? What I've said many times to, to as I go to you know, Chicago or, or LA, Miami, you have to know who your audience is before you start talking about an American watching museum. Because in Florida, people will say, oh, it's gonna be a Mexican museum. Right? Or if I'm in the if I'm in the Southwest, people will say, you're trying to justify the, the Spanish atrocities, right? And then along that path, someone will slap me on the wrist for you know not talking about the Tainos or the Afro-Latinos uh, or the Asian Pacific Islander Latinos, right? So so it's so varied that my only response has been, let us come together to get into the museum. Once we're inside, as we say in Spanish, ahí nos peleamos. We'll fight it out then. My job is to get the legislation through and get the building done. And then the Smithsonian Latino Center that currently exists and is working on a 5,000 square foot gallery just to tease out what the museum might look like. They have the curators to bring it all together. But it will absolutely be hard. It will absolutely be a mess to get all of this sorted out. We have to start from somewhere, but my guess is that it's gonna be segmented. You have to start with the, the history of the Southwest and then the pieces of Florida. The fact that the Spanish did uh, establish the first city in, in, uh, in the United States, right? Those, those stories are gonna come together. Uh, you know, I don't know how many times You've seen those movies where the movie starts and there's seven different people totally disconnected. And in the last five minutes of the movie, they all come together in some craziness, right? And you're like, oh my God, (laughs) that's our museum. You have these stories totally disconnected that somehow come together in the last five minutes of your experience there. And you realize that it was all a a perfect, perfectly balanced uh, narrative that, that created the Latino experience in this country and contributed to its an amazing growth. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't, I, I can tell you this, uh, even though I've gone long here, when I go to um, California, I don't say Hispanics. Um, I, I intersperse in there in the Southwest, the word Chicano. Um, and when I'm talking to a younger demographic, I'll say the Latinx, which is a whole other controversial piece, right? Because not, Everyone agrees with that at all. But, but there's a segment that, that does. And we have to acknowledge people. We have to validate them. If they see themselves as a, as a Boricua over uh, a Chicano or, or, or Latino, then we have to talk about the Boricua experience and the Borinquen ears, the high, most highly decorated uh, battalion. Um, these are, these, we have to find ways to relate and, and at the very least give people space to disagree. Uh, we went with the American Latino Museum because at that time we felt that was the safest way. I still get emails criticizing the name all the time and I thank them and I appreciate it and I tell them help me get this done and then once we're in there 
ahí nos peleamos. Wow, uh, I have to say, everything you're saying is sort of a, a, like a metaphor for everything you're saying. In that the problem, the problem with the Latino in America is that is just that that they're not unified. The whole idea to me sounds like the idea of the museum is to unify. To make the museum, you have to unify. If you go to the museum, you'll unify. Right. So it's all about unification, and uh, most importantly, it's about identity. So can you speak a little bit about how history creates identity and potentially into the future? I, I went to uh, I went to a, a conference uh, about a year ago, or so and it was um, a room full of Latino attorneys, Latina Latino attorneys from all over the country, um, and, and we were talking about uh, about the bill. And I said to them, "If I say cuantos Puerto Ricanos, I'm sure there's a segment that's going to lift lift up their fists and be like, Ooh, Puerto Ricans, right?'" And I say, if I, if I yell out, cuantos peruanos, cuantos venezolanos, cuantos colombianos, everyone's different pockets across the room are going to cheer. But then if I say, cuantos americanos, how many Americans in the room? People are going to be like, uh, uh, right? They're going to be stuck. But mm. why? Why are we stuck? Right. We, we do segment ourselves. We do talk about the, the arepa over the Peruvian empanada, over the pupusa from El Salvador, right? We do, we do identify with our, with our origin, and then we hold on to that and refuse to also embrace. We have fallen into that trap where we see, as, we see, as you said, uh, Mike, that mainstream. What is mainstream? We have fallen into the trap that the mainstream doesn't like us. So we're... Peruvian American, not American, or and American. We have to be able to stand up ourselves and say, when someone yells out, "Cuántos Americanos?" Raise your hand, hoot and holler, because you are, and because your your relatives that are 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 driving local economies, creating the the fastest growing segment of small business among Hispanic women, fastest job creator small Hispanic businesses, right? But yet we hesitate to embrace the, that, that American identity for fear that we're somehow you know, working against our own people and, and we're not. So that identity piece has both been created by, the, by us and also imposed on us. And that's the piece that we have to break out of if we're really going to come together. Should be no, it, there should be no question that you can have a Peruvian origin but be fully American, because that's what America is, diversity. We've been talking about this, uh, not only here, but also you know, in our podcast and in conversations, uh, that Hispanics themselves, there's just so much. Uh, first of all, we need to unify ourselves, and then we need to be able to know exactly what part of our cultures from uh, the Latin diaspora will be in, in going into the American Latino Museum. And that just seems like a very onerous task. Have you identified who could be this person that's going to take on this task to incorporate all of our culture into Jack one Rico. single no, museum. 
Did you just send me a resume? <laughs> yeah, no, I um yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not kidding when I say when this bill passes, I'm gonna do that Pontius Pilot. Wash my hands. The Smithsonian, those those people are have been doing this forever. The the experts within the Smithsonian, and now now thank thank you to to Secretary Lonnie Bunch. Now that's a man. If you haven't spoken to him already, mind blowing to speak with him about the road uh, and the experience and the voyage to open the doors of the African American Museum. Now that he is the head of the Smithsonian as the secretary. Yeah, I think we have the greatest opportunity possible to get it right, to be the, the, a more accurate, to have a more accurate telling of American history. He has testified before Congress. He has been challenged on the need for an American Latin Museum, the need for an American, uh, uh, a, a women's history museum, which is also in process of, of, getting, uh, of getting approved. Uh, and he has responded, even under pressure uh, that the Smithsonian has budgetary constraints, he has is, he is not hesitated to say the, the greater diversity and inclusion that we can present to tourists from all over the country and the world, the greater service we're doing to the country. It, that attitude that whatever it takes, even if there's no money right now, we're going to find a way to do it because he passionately believes that we have to correct the representation of who we are. And we have to start with history, the accuracy of our history. That's where we can better educate and make change for our future. We've had secretaries before him who have, who, have, who have said, now is not the right time. We don't have the money. Always with eat. And the thing is, they didn't have to say that. They could just be supportive, but they chose not to. They chose to say, now is not the right time. So to hear Secretary Bunch, just the commitment to it was greater than any previous secretary has ever was the greatest impact on our effort than any previous uh, secretary has ever had because he left the door open. He just, we just leave the door That's open awesome. to it and we'll find a way to get in and, and, and across. So I, I am confident that under secretary bunch, once legislation passes, he will have the right people um, to find a way to get this done. And the existing Smithsonian Latino center that has been around for over 20 years now, um, they have started this process. They, they have wonderful exhibits um, that tour around the country. And as I said, in 2022, they'll be opening a 5,000 square foot gallery. I'm not sure how that deadline has been affected because of the current environment and um, you know, what we're experiencing around the country. But, but that was the original goal. And, and that will be a great teaser to what a full American Latino Museum will be on the National Mall. I'd like to ask you one last question. I'm curious, you know, you, you've talked about all these powerful things that, that both Jack and I completely believe in, what we talk about on the show, identity, unity, uh, changing the narrative. Uh, I'm curious about your narrative, like your path, like what made little Estuardo decide, hey, I care a lot about history. I mean, you're a lawyer. How, how did you end up becoming such an advocate for history and change? I mean, 
it makes a lot of sense, but how did this happen? In 2003, Javier Becerra and Eliana Rosslein introduced the bill. 2004, I was working um, you know, in support of the Kerry campaign. And you know, after you know, that didn't happen, uh, my second campaign that I lost, maybe it was me, I was bad luck or something, but it, that didn't happen. Um, I ended up meeting Robert Rabin, who's uh, you know, the, the head of our, our firm, the Rabin Group. And uh, Robert and I were hanging out at the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Legislative uh, Conference where he was moderating a panel on the uh, legislation to create an American Latino Museum. And as Robert often does, you know, after the whole discussion is done and complete and people walking out, he, come, he comes over to me and goes, you know what, I have an idea. And I said, all right, what's the idea? He was like, why don't we just kind of help them out a bit? And I said, sure, let's help them out. And so we started hmm. with an advisory group. I, I gathered, you know, Dolores Huerta, uh, the leadership from, you know, NCLR, now Unidos US, LULAC, MALDEF. We just held these calls and, and, and focused on, let's get this bill through to create the commission. And so it became, it, it, was, it started as a small project. And it just started growing because then I realized, well, we need a comms effort. Oh, we need a digital strategy. Oh, we should incorporate. We, we, need, to, we need to be able to put out statements and, and have an entity that's really responsible for driving all this. Uh, and it just, it became a whole campaign that... Um, started because I told Robert, sure, let's do it. And, and we find ourselves here 15 years later with an effort that has involved celebrity, uh, business. I mean, Target has been one of our biggest sponsors. I mean, it, it snowballs into, into something that it has to be. Any great effort or initiative needs a real structured campaign. And, and that's how this came about. But I will add, if I was... Puerto Rican, if I was Mexican-American, you know, generations here, I don't, I, I wonder how this, what my, what my lens would have been, because I am first generation. I was born in Washington, D.C., Peruvian background. I had no idea what the Chicano movement was. I had no idea what the experience of, of the Boricuas are in the Northeast. And, and so it, it was, it was, it was eye-opening for me because I had a point of neutrality where if someone said to me, you're wrong about this, I would say, yeah, you're right. Maybe I am wrong. And I learned along the path that everyone had very strong feelings about their American experience. And I came into it with a sense of deference. You, you have hundreds of years uh, or, or something close to that in the Southwest or in, or in Florida or, or in, in, in the Midwest. And, and all of that, uh, there was no bias from my part so that I was able to just give people more space to educate me on, on, uh, on their American identity and experience. And I think that was, I, I think that was perfect. I, I, and of course I'm being biased, but I think that was perfect because when you come into something like this, it's, it's often too easy for you to, see everything through your own experience as a, as a Latino or perhaps as uh, African-American or Asian Pacific Islander. Uh, and, it, and it was very important through this whole process that, that there, there, there was some neutrality to it, to, to, to present the stories as they are or as they, as, they, as they are believed to be from that individual's or that community's experience. Um, so that's how we ended up 
starting this little, let's go, you know, put on a show <laughs> with uh, Ileana Ross Layton and, and Becerra. And, and it's what's brought us here. Um, we still have to get the bill through the Senate. We still have to get that bill signed by uh, this White House. And uh, we are confident that working with our, our friends and allies on the Republican side, as well as in corporate America, um, the arts and community, that working together, we'll get this legislation done. And then we still have some time. It's not going to be built tomorrow. It, it's a process that's going to take at least another eight, eight years to 10 years. So before people start salivating about that cafeteria, I was just saying, we got to get the work done. We got to get it done. Uh, uh, that, that's too bad because I was really ready for some Peruvian chicken. Like, <laughs> that's just the start. Next week. That's just, okay. That's just, next just week. the start. Next week. Get a ceviche in there. And um, this is when we plug Peruvian Independence Day was this week. There you go. Come on. Hey. Come on. Night. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> I just wanted to say uh, on my behalf, and, and I'm sure Mike feels the same way, muchísimas gracias. Thank you for uh, coming on board. Thank you for history allowing you to be a part of this movement. And hopefully in 10 years, uh, more of my family, uh, students that I teach Absolutely. will have a chance uh, because of your contributions to be able to go and feel like they are part of the American experience. So muchísimas gracias, Estuardo, for everything you've done, man. Thank you. And, and I'm... And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to also make sure to thank our board chairman, Danny Vargas, and, and uh, Ileana Ross-Layton, and Congressman Tony Cardenas, Will Hurd uh, from, from San Antonio, uh, Pete Aguilar from California, so many of the members, uh, champions in the House, and now champions in the Senate, Senator Cornyn, Senator Menendez. It takes a village. It, it, like I said, I, I appreciate the, the thanks being sent my way but it's, it's got to be shared across the board. And so thank you all for giving us the opportunity to talk You're about this and reaching your audience. This is, this is invaluable to this whole initiative and campaign. And thank you for the story and the shaping of the narrative that you all are contributing to. Thank you so much for being on the Brown and Black Podcast. And that's it for this 11th episode of Brown and Black. Thank you to Estuardo Rodriguez for being on the show. And if you like to support this podcast, please subscribe on any podcast platform and leave a review. Your help allows us to be heard by many more people. You can reach us on Twitter at Brown Black Pod, on Instagram at Brown Black Podcast, and on our new YouTube channel at Brown Black Podcast. See you next week for another episode of Brown and Black. Ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our start up and running. <laughs> 
another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro. 